President Biden's Made in America executive order, the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council, and their collective impact on the Buy American Act of 1933. What does this mean for federal contractors? What does this mean for our critical supply lines? We'll find out. Amy Hong from the law firm of KL Gates lends us her knowledge. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a lot to cover today. But first, we need to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's Noda spelled N O T A. And remember, Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's say hello to our guest, Amy Hong. She's a partner at the law firm of KL Gates. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Lawrence. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here, too. And so I wanted you to walk us through this uh, article of yours that uh, I guess you co-authored with Melody. And how do you pronounce uh, Mel- Melody's last name? Alamansor. Alamansor. So great article and uh, kind of educated me on uh, some some government agency action that I didn't know about. But the, uh, the title of your article is Proposed Rule Implementing Portion of Made in America Executive Order, Its Impact on Federal Contractors and Their Supply Lines. So I thought, you know, real important, you know, uh, COVID-19, we saw, you know, kind of the shortage of N95 masks, respirators and things like that. And so obviously, you know, front and center on people's minds is just the, these important supply lines to our country. And so I want to get your help guiding us through a a few of these main components. Of course, there's the executive order, President Biden's executive order 14005, the Made in America executive order, the Buy American Act of 1933, which is the foundation. And then there's this new rule. And this was the, uh, the council that I was not familiar with, this new rule proposed by the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council. But before we get into all that, tell us about your practice at KNL Gates. Sure. So I'm in our government contracts and procurement policy group. So we're kind of a soup to nuts shop when it comes to assisting federal contractors from very small startups to very large defense contractors on all of their dealings with the federal government. So sometimes disputes, sometimes compliance, and sometimes transactional work. Excellent. Excellent. So I've got the right guess is what you're telling me. (laughs) I hope so. All right. Well, let's start at the very beginning. So this Buy American Act of 1933, tell us about that. What is it specifically designed to do? Sure. So the Buy American Act, the BAA, is a Depression-era protectionist statute. So the intent is to protect U.S. businesses and labor by encouraging federal agencies to purchase goods manufactured in the U.S. from U.S. materials. So the design was to bolster the U.S. economy and protect U.S. jobs. Okay, so fast forward to today, and I understand there's a little bit of a a symbiotic relationship here. So you've got President Biden's executive order, the Made in America executive order, and then you have this council, the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council. That council's implementing a new rule in response to that executive order. So tell us a little bit about that. Give us a brief summary, and we'll build out the uh, we'll build out the individual components. Sure. So just to connect the dots between those, the the Made in America executive order is you know what what President Biden. Uh, really wants agencies to accomplish, and it's it's painted with broad strokes. But but one of the one of the limitations of that executive order is what is already implemented in statute, and that would be the Buy American Act. But the Buy American Act, agencies don't just comply with the Buy American Act, the the language of the statute. It's implemented through regulation. So the Federal Acquisition or FAR Council is the body that implements those regulations through the Federal Acquisition Regulation, the FAR. 
So the Made in America executive order promotes a policy of using federal procurement to maximize the use of domestic goods and services. And it makes some pretty specific directives regarding changes to the Buy American Act's implementing regulations. So those regulations that the FAR Council deals with. And that's where the FAR Council comes in. That's the group, and it includes representatives from DOD, from NASA, and from GSA, that's charged with making revisions to the Federal Acquisition Regulation. So in furtherance to some of the directives in the EO, the FAR Council has proposed certain amendments to sections of the FAR that implement the Buy American Act requirements. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Now, part of that is they want to increase the amount of domestic materials that go into those finalized important projects that uh, some of these federal contractors uh, manufacture or create for our country. So tell us about those domestic material requirements as they increase over the years. Right. So as I said before, the, the Buy American Act is supporting both U.S. manufacturing and U.S. content in those manufactured goods. So those percentages stem from the fact that the Buy American Act itself doesn't specifically define what constitutes a domestic product. Instead, it states that the government must procure items manufactured in the U.S. from, quote, substantially all, end quote, U.S. materials. Well, what does substantially all U.S. materials mean? In 1954, President Eisenhower issued an executive order declaring that substantially all should be interpreted as 50% or more domestic content. And that's the standard we've operated under for decades until far revisions under the Trump administration up to that percentage to 55%. But now under the Made in America executive order and then specifically this recent proposed rule, we're going to see an increase to 60% and then an increase to 65% in two years and to 75% in five years. So these domestic content requirements mean that the Buy American Act applies to an end product that must be manufactured in the U.S. and also must contain these specific percentages of U.S. component parts to be considered a domestic product. Now, in terms of the contractors that this applies to, you know, tell us about them. I mean, you mentioned some of the, the big hitters there, like the Department of Defense contractors, but they're not all the same size. Of course, you've got like Boeing, you have uh, Northrop Grumming, you know, those kind of uh, NASA, you know, or I guess NASA is an agency, but uh, but you have these big purchasers, these big uh, providers of products and services, but not every one of them is gigantic. So does this apply to all of those uh, federal contractors, regardless of size? So yes and no. It does apply to all contractors regardless of, of size. And more importantly, and this was noted in the, in the title of our article, it's going to apply not just to federal contractors, but by extension, they're lower tier suppliers. So even some folks that maybe don't even consider themselves a government contractor, if they're in a prime contractor supply chain, this is going to affect them. They might not be specifically required to comply with the proposed rule, but they might start getting some additional questions from federal contractors about what the percentage of their domestic content is on the components that they are supplying to that federal prime contractor. But I say yes and no, because yes, it applies to everyone, but it's important to note that the Buy American Act does not universally apply to every federal procurement. It applies to a somewhat limited universe of federal procurements, and that's because the U.S. is party to a number of trade agreements that prohibit the government from discriminating against goods produced by its trading partners. 
So the Buy American Act generally applies to procurements below whatever dollar thresholds are negotiated into those agreements. And a great example of that is a really common agreement is the World Trade Organization's Government Procurement Agreement. And the U.S. is party to that. Many, many countries, essentially every EU country is a member of that. And that agreement kicks in at procurements of $182,000 or more for supply contracts. So at $182,000 and above, the Buy American Act doesn't specifically apply because we have to grant reciprocity to those trading partners. So when we're talking about Buy American Act procurements, we're generally talking about procurements under $182,000, though there are some additional exceptions where the BAA is going to apply regardless of dollar threshold, certain national security contracts, uh, certain contracts set aside for small businesses, and some sole source procurements. But by and large, you're looking at kind of those procurements under $182,000 for Buy American Act coverage. Yeah, you know, and the, the allure of a of a, basically a guaranteed government contract, you know, does carry a lot of sway. But as I understand, there's going to be a commentary period before this rule would get implemented. It'll be interesting to see what some of those a smaller, more subcontractor type of entities out there say about it. Because you know, when you're a, when you're a big contractor, you can attract those volume based discounts, and you can get your supply chains put together pretty easily. But the smaller ones, you know, they may not be as proven. They may not have as much sway, even with that government contract. So that that might be something to kind of keep an eye out for. So I want to transition over to uh, price preference and critical products. That, that was part of this. And so price preference, what does that mean exactly? And then what, what type of critical products is this uh, new rule proposal referring to? Sure. So the, the price preference is in relation to something that already exists within the, the Buy American Act. The Buy American Act doesn't actually prohibit agencies from purchasing foreign products. What the Buy American Act does is it employs a price preference for U.S. products. So right now, this this price preference already exists, and it means that an agency can consider buying foreign products, but they essentially have to add a certain percentage to that foreign product's cost when they're doing the evaluation of which product is the lower price or which product is the best value to the government. So it get, it essentially gives the U.S. products a leg up by making them look cheaper in the evaluation. And while that's already covered, the proposed rule would increase that preference for certain critical items or components. So it would be more difficult to purchase foreign products if they're if we're dealing with these critical items and components because they would essentially look more expensive in the evaluation process. Okay, and then uh, those critical products. What does that refer to when uh, when this new rule proposed and the and the, um, the the Buy American Act? When they talk about critical products, maybe some examples to kind of to kind of drive the point home. So, so I wish I had an example of a critical product for you, but unfortunately, that's the million dollar question right now. We don't really know what those critical oh, wow. items are going to be. The rule references this critical supply chain review process that's implemented by another executive order, America's Supply Chains. And so we know that the critical products or critical items or critical components are going to be based off of that review process. We know that that executive order calls out public health and biological preparedness, energy sector, transportation, agriculture, But the rule states that not everything identified in that executive order is going to be found critical. And in fact, the rule 
proposes a second proposed rule uh, to actually address what is going to be considered a critical product and what the price preference for those critical products is going to be. Well, that sounds like the government making things simple for all of us. <laughs> so, well, yeah, you know, I think one thing to kind of keep in mind, I think uh, and as you and I were talking about in the uh, the pregame, you know, I think, uh, you know, regardless of what side of the political aisle you're on, people want the United States buying domestically more often. They want uh, more of that money that we spend to be invested in our country. But at the same time, you know, when you have these increases, you know, if there's something that's just really hard to get, and let's say you're even getting it from a friendly ally, you know, that brings brings up the cost for everybody. So, Definitely a balancing act there, and especially with uh, some of these uh, loose ends, as you were just alluding to with the critical products list, might be one of those things to to kind of calculate and balance out a little bit more later. But uh, I understand there's some new reporting requirements now for these uh, these federal contractors. So tell us about those. Sure. So again, this is going to apply to the yet-to-be-defined critical items. The idea behind this reporting requirement is requiring companies supplying these items to report the specific domestic content of those items. So right now, it's binary. Either you're providing a domestic product or you're not. And it doesn't matter whether that domestic product has 51% domestic content or 100% domestic content, or I guess now with the the increase, 55% domestic content or 100% domestic content. This new requirement would, for critical items, states that you can't just say, yes, I'm a domestic product, or no, I'm not a domestic product. It's, yes, I'm a domestic product, and I have X amount of domestic content. So it's not just whether you're meeting that percentage or not. It's actually looking at the degree to which you're meeting it. Are you just meeting that baseline, what's soon going to be 60% domestic content, or are you actually providing 100% domestic content? So it's it's suggesting that the agency is going to be looking not just at whether you're meeting it, but how much domestic content. So it's essentially getting extra credit, I guess, for for going beyond that 60% domestic content requirement. All right, we're running out of time, but I do want to hit two more questions here. And so I I briefly touched upon there's going to be a commentary period for all of the stakeholders in these proposed new regulations here. But when would that rule potentially kick in? What's left in the process for it to become a rule? Right. So there isn't a set date for the final rule. And what right now we are looking at that September 28th date for commentary. But the the quantity and content of comments that the FAR Council receives is going to affect how long it takes to publish a final rule. But we, we assume that the FAR Council is going to look at all of those comments, review them, assess how they're going to affect the the final rule, and then we would see a final rule published sometime after that. But it's, it's too soon to tell when we can expect that rule. All right, last question for you. And this one was inspired by, I was I was driving around uh, running errands this weekend and I cannot remember which podcast this is on. I was kind of half paying attention and also mostly paying attention to my driving. But anyway, uh, they, they mentioned something, a little blurb about new car sales uh, being way down in the United States right now because there's a microchip shortage going on right now. And of course, we get a lot of that from Taiwan. I think, I think the most of the United States supply comes from Taiwan, if I'm not mistaken. But regardless, uh, there's a shortage going on right now. And so my question, the reason I'm at, uh, bringing this up is because, you know, there's a federal contractor out there. They're doing the best they can. They either can't or won't, or just you know the inability to get all of that source local uh, domestic to the United States. If they can't come into compliance, what happens? What are the consequences? 
Sure. And, and one of the things you hit on is it's kind of this vicious cycle, right? It's where we don't have availability because we're reliant on overseas uh, competition. So the right. idea is we need this so that we so that we can increase the domestic industrial base. We get people to to build things here. But in the short term, there are limited alternatives in forms of waivers, some kind of agency specific. But there the act and its implementing regulations already contemplate the fact that some items just might not be available domestically or they might not be available domestically for a reasonable price. And so there are alternatives in the form of waivers, particularly if an item is not available for a domestic source. And then it's also important to remember, as we've already talked about, the BA is an outright prohibition on purchasing from on purchasing foreign products. It only provides a price preference for domestic goods. So it is possible to propose a foreign product. It might be just more difficult to demonstrate that your product is the best value for the government. Well, Amy, it was great having you on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you, listeners, for sharing your day with us. It's always terrific being here with you. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. And please stay tuned for some important updates we have coming up about the show very soon, very soon. And also, one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Thank you so much for your support, Noda. And last but never least, thank you to a hardworking team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew. They always do such a terrific job. It's a pleasure to work with them every day. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.